Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tong Podcast, Tracing the Trend, with me, Rebecca Miller. And excitingly, joining us today, we have our guest host, Adam Knight. Adam is our co-founder at Tong and joins us with a great wealth of knowledge on all things related to China. It's great to have you here with us, Adam. Thank you, Rebecca. As a uh, an avid subscriber and listener to the <laughs> Tong podcast, it's good to be on the side of the microphone. Really excited to uh, participate in today's conversation. Great. So on today's episode, as always, we will be diving into some of the biggest trends shaping China today. And today we're really going to be trying to get under the skin of the emerging movement of clean beauty in China. Under the skin, you say. Nice uh, nice pun there, Rebecca. Uh, <laughs> very good. And uh, yeah, joining us today uh, to shed some light on this topic, we're really, really happy to have Lisa Yu with us. Lisa is the founder of the brand incubator Gen Lab, about which I'm hoping we're going to hear a little bit in a few minutes' time. Lisa grew up in Germany, in Hamburg, I believe. And I think there's a there's an additional connection between the two of us in that you studied in Lancaster, which oh, yes. is the same part of the country that I grew up in. Lisa spent five years working for L'Oreal, two years in Germany, three years in China, when she climbed to the heady heights of the country's head of social transformation. I believe the youngest person to hold that position. That's correct. Thank Very you. Impressive. <laughs> uh, so Lisa is uh, speaking to us about this topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you here in this nicely air-conditioned podcast studio on what is the hottest day of the year so far. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for the great introduction. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. I think to get us started, it would be great to understand a bit more about GenLab, what you do there and, and how you work with and also select the brands that become part of your program there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I think I will start a little bit with my background. So I started my whole career at L'Oreal, worked in beauty my whole life, and I really liked how L'Oreal was at the front of everything. So we basically innovated the whole industry by being one of the first going into social, digital, making tools for KOL selection, influencers. And at that time, that part in marketing was the most kind of important metric to get brands really engaged on board uh, with the consumer. And I feel like that area or that, that era in China was really significant for how you do business. And actually, my last position at L'Oreal was to launch indie brands. So the group has a bunch of brands, like I think 50 plus, and only 25 of them have launched in China at that time. And our new group or new team was responsible to launch them in China with new business models because we realized the whole live stream trend and the whole e-commerce trend, it was slowing down a bit. That worked very well. We launched, uh, for example, Maison Magella. We launched Tecleur. And I found that so interesting that I wanted to create a company that can enable brands with a purpose or that really are on a mission to help them launch in China. We are a beauty incubator that launches new brands in China with new business models. So we do not only do e-commerce and social, which was a great, great combination, I think, five years ago, three years ago. But nowadays, I feel like there's so much more to it and especially the branding aspect. So this is why we say, oh, we really look for brands with a purpose, who have a brand story, who want to provide added value to the consumer. Because we think this is the one part that is a little bit missing in those Chinese local brands. We saw this whole 
FMCG trend. Venture capital was investing heavily in <laughs> consumer brands. I feel like this branding part is the one thing that sets apart, you know, a really great brand with a, an industry brand, for example. We try to launch indie brands or new brands from the West to China with new business models. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Lisa. Tracing the trend. 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 This kind of idea of purpose is obviously at the heart of everything that you guys do mm -hmm. and at the heart of all the brands that you're mm -hmm. launching into the market. And of course, one of the purposes that a lot of beauty brands in particular have started to subscribe to, certainly in a European or American context, is this idea of clean beauty, cleanliness. Mm -hmm. What does that mean within a Chinese context? I think the term clean beauty, it comes from Glossier with Emily Weiss. I think she really invented the term because she wanted a beauty product or makeup product that didn't do harm to your skin, to your body, because there were a lot of toxins in some of the beauty products. I think this is how the term evolved. Until today in China, I don't think there is a specific set of definitions from the government. But I feel like with the pandemic and people getting more conscious about health and more conscious about products, ingredients, especially after the whole ingredient trend, mm -hmm. people know so much more. The Chinese consumer is so savvy that they are more selective. And I think clean beauty in China, just in a traditional sense, just stands for no toxins. Yeah. So no mm -hmm. toxic ingredients in the products. And a lot of pregnant women, they are looking or actively looking for clean beauty. You have to be really conscious about what you use. So currently I feel the trend one, you know, pushed by the pandemic. And the other thing is with the whole pregnancy topic, women get more conscious about how safe products are. So I feel like clean beauty in China stands for a generic term of safe beauty products. Mm. That's a really interesting point about the pregnancy as well, because I remember in China when my friends were pregnant, they weren't actually allowed to wear makeup. Nothing. Uh, you know, it, was, yeah. it was very much uh, recommended not to wear makeup. Correct. So it's interesting that that's also at the yeah. forefront of this shift towards a growing concern of what's in the products people are yeah. putting on their face or, or using on their bodies. Another point that I wanted to think about is how much is it about ensuring that the product is good for me and how much are consumers thinking about what the product is doing to the environment? Right, because surely that's a key driver of this idea of clean in a European or American context is that broader ESG agenda. You know, yeah, exactly. So much tied up into not testing on animals, using environmentally sustainable or, or responsible materials you know, recycled packaging, that kind of thing. It all kind of gets baked into this very broad mm. term, clean. How important are those in the Chinese context yeah, as well? Yeah. So what I have observed from the China market is that big brands like La Mer, for example, Biotherm, belonging to the big groups, they have this social sustainable action to their brands because it's so deep in their identity worldwide that they also do it in China. For example, saving the oceans, different movements of cleaning the ocean, etc. I feel like it's a great add-on. People like it. They have events, for example, in Sanya where they go together and clean the beach um, as a team event. They spread it on social or they have you know, communities that they support. And I think it's super great. I'm just not sure yet if that's a unique selling point to the actual product itself. So I think this is more the branding aspect where the consumer has a set of values and it's certainly stronger in the West than in China and where they feel like, oh, okay, I belong to the brand or I really identify with the brand. 
for the Chinese consumer, I think we're not quite there yet. <laughs> so China has just gotten out of the whole ingredients movement. So I think in 2019, especially 2018, 19, the whole skincare industry was shaking up a little bit because everyone was aiming for the skinceuticals of the world. The Chinese consumers really wanted efficacy. That is really on top of the kind of buying process for the consumers. It was for a while, right? Doing the shift from efficacy or what the product does for you on a very visible term towards, oh, I'm connecting on a spiritual or emotional level. I think the shift is happening right now. Absolutely. I think that's a shift that we've seen across all of the categories in China, interestingly, moving from that more kind of functional right. purchase-driven decision Absolutely. to more emotional choices. And in the past, obviously, Korean beauty brands, Japanese mm -hmm. beauty brands were very, very popular. I mean, they still are yeah. uh, within China. And I think a large part of that was, as you say, the efficacy. So it's interesting that we're now seeing consumers shift towards purchasing beauty products also because of the way that the beauty product actually represents the values that mm -hmm. they hold. In terms of the purpose-driven brands that you work with as part of uh, your incubator, how many of those are beauty brands? And is there anything particular when you're talking about beauty and being purpose-driven? So in the incubator currently, we have two brands, which are beauty brands. I have Angel invested in two beverage brands, but they are separate from the beauty incubator as such. What we mean by purpose-driven brand is that they have a higher purpose, you know, separate from just selling their products. So, for example, if I just take one of the brands uh, I've personally invested in, it's called Zea. So it is a hard seltzer brand. What we are trying to do is to reinvent the drinking culture in China because China has this baijiu文化, right? So mm. on business dinners, you drink a lot and people force you to do it. And then the founder, he asked around his team and he was like, okay, do you guys like it? And all the girls and boys uh, who were Gen Z, they were like, no, we really don't enjoy it. He wanted to create something, a new product category, um, which is Hard Zelta, which is very successful in the US, to launch something that reinvents the whole drinking culture in China. Mm. So I can do something more chilled. Maybe it's day drinking. Um, I do not have to drink a lot. And to be fair, this is the only alcoholic beverage that I could finish. Hmm. And I was so impressed by it because as a girl, um, as an Asian, you know, I'm not the like big drinker <laughs> and I, I'm not a big fan of beer. But that beverage mm. I could just finish. I could drink like three or four of them. So that was the one thing where I was like, OK, that's actually very purposeful. And it doesn't have to be environmentally conscious because we have cans and no plastic, for example. Yeah. But in terms of the vision and that we actually want to also connect a brand to mental health, for mm -hmm. example, because that's a topic that is not at all talked about in China. So mm. this is what we mean by purpose, that we want to create a movement that can leave the world a little bit better than we have found it now. Brilliant. I wouldn't be doing my job as guest host if I didn't point out that on a previous episode of this very podcast, we, we discussed drinking culture amongst oh. uh, Gen Z consumers in China. <laughs> cool, so do check cool. that out. How resonating do you find that this kind of purpose-driven message to be in Chinese context? You talked a little before about the kind of ingredients movement and yeah. the, the focus on efficacy and function. Mm -hmm. How big is the opportunity? How big is the potential here yeah. for brands that are leading with this driven message? Yeah, I think the potential is huge. Why? I actually did a little bit research during my MBA 
visas, looking into Chinese brands going global and why this hasn't happened yet, especially in the beauty industry. So from Japan, we have Shiseido. From Korea, we have Amore Pacific, who are very, very successful internationally. And they are accepted by all kinds of nations, uh, people. I ask myself the question, why has it not happened with Chinese brands yet? And I think this can be followed back to the era of manufacturing because Chinese people are very good in supply chain. They're good in channels. They can create functional products, like all the products or brands you can find on Amazon today. They work, but they do not have this emotional added value to them. So the branding layer. So from purely functional, for example, okay, it hydrates your skin. From it can remove wrinkles, it can protect it from the sunlight, for example. So that was already a huge step up. I feel like with more and more younger people studying abroad or with the internet being more sophisticated, they just have access to a lot more information. They have the comparison of Western brands entering China and they know what they can get. Chinese people love luxury brands, for example, right? Mm, and of course. this is a status and this is something premium that you build up as a brand, but it's not in the functionality of the product itself. Western brands, I feel like especially the French brands, they really know how to tell the story and create this brand experience and brand desire. Whereas in China, more of the beauty brands, for example, Perfect Diary, they're still focused on their great, great capability of the supply chain. I mean, they have great products. I'm actually a huge fan of the products because uh, their lipstick, it's like my Armani lipstick. I mean, I've tried a lot of them and the quality is really good. But how do you make them more expensive and desirable. And I think this is something Chinese brands per se have to crack. It's a fascinating trend. I think many of our listeners will be familiar with some of the bigger names, the bigger domestic makeup brands mm -hmm. in particular in China that are stealing a march on the international competition. But what you're talking about is the potential maybe for some of these domestic brands to go international as well. Yeah. You know, are there any brands that are already doing well in this area? I'm looking at some in the consumer industry. I feel like if you segment the consumer industry in a couple of sectors, the one of consumer electronics has done pretty well. The Chinese brands really want to do branding. So I feel like now they realize how important that is mm. and now they want to do it. Next to fashion brands, for example, Shein or brands like Neiwai for underwear and yoga. So the trend is certainly shifting into the consumer sector. With makeup, we will have to see. I hope there will be, but maybe in the next few years. It's interesting that you bring up Xiaomi as a brand that's emerging into the West and doing well, but also as a brand that's starting to understand the concept of brand and the importance of having that emotional level to your offering. I actually had a meeting with Xiaomi probably about seven, eight years ago when I was working in a branding oh, agency, cool. trying to explain to Xiaomi the importance of brand. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> so it's great to see that they're now jumping onto that bandwagon and doing that. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Thinking back to beauty, it will be interesting to understand your thoughts on Chinese brands and Western brands. Obviously, we saw Perfect Diary, as you mentioned, AY, obviously not a beauty brand, but very much within that space. Mm -hmm. How much do you think Chinese brands are going to dominate the space domestically in China? 
against Western brands in the next five years? Mm. That's a good question. Here, I would actually divide by category. So in beauty, we have makeup, skincare, fragrances, and hair care. We've seen a big, big shift, especially in the makeup sector. So we have Perfect Diary. I'm a big fan of the Judy Doll group. So they have Judy Doll and a couple of other brands under their umbrella. There are certainly great, great brands emerging. And in color cosmetics, I feel like it's easier because the technology, the patents, the research is less dominant than, for example, in skincare. So I feel like if there is a sector where Chinese brands will be very dominant and we can see it already, it would be makeup. But a lot of the successful brands are trying to tap in the premium skincare sector. And that is a huge market that hasn't been really cracked yet by the local brands. So 2017-18, we had the Home Facial Pro, who Mm -hmm. really were jumping on this ingredient trend. From the look and feel or the idea, the concept, it reminded me a little bit of The Ordinary. These guys also did very, very well. However, it's about how premium you can go, how much you can make the brand be worth uh, in consumers' eyes or hearts. I feel like that's particularly difficult for skincare because you need the patents. It's much more about research. It's about ingredients and probably even more difficult in fragrance because fragrance, I feel like, is the gold medal or on top of, you know, telling your brand story. Oh, absolutely. Describing the fragrance if you, you know, love it. I love the Yves Saint Laurent Black Opium Perfume. And if you put it on, you immediately feel like, okay, that's going to be my night out. Mm. I'm going to wear those heels. I'm going to wear that red lipstick. It's kind of the sense of feeling or emotion you just get while putting a fragrance on. That's really the, the Olympic or the King's class of telling a story, doing branding. So I feel like there will be a graduate shift from makeup, which is definitely dominant for local brands, and then shifting slowly into skincare because that's the biggest market, premium skincare. And then maybe someday fragrances. There are a couple of Chinese brands who are doing it already, but it's a question of how big they can get. Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of brands that spring to mind straight away. Scent Library, yeah. Summer. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, one of the ways that those brands have kind of stolen a march on the competition is through kind of more innovative, more localized marketing yeah. strategies, of course. You know, mm-hmm. a big piece for both of them is brand collaborations, mm-hmm. IP licensing, that kind of thing. Lots of people will have heard of the Scent Library White Rabbit collaboration yes. they did a few yeah. years ago, really <laughs> tapping into that nostalgia. And it's the same kind of strategy that we saw brands like Perfect Diary adopt as well, mm-hmm. right? kind of brand collaboration yeah. first strategy that allowed them to really tap into kind of uh, a whole range of cult communities in China. And this kind of circles back to a point you made earlier, which I want to pick your brain on, which is some of the kind of more emerging business models and routes to market that are opening up and that we're starting to see particularly purpose-driven brands, clean beauty brands make use of. We're all aware of the difficulties when it comes to mm-hmm. getting set up and scaling and let alone making any money on yeah. Tmall. What are some of the other more innovative ways that a brand, particularly purpose-driven, clean, et cetera, can get into this space? Mm-hmm. Just rolling back why I feel like this is so crucial for today's business is because I have actually observed two big brand launches while it's at L'Oreal, the traditional way. So we had celebrities, I mean, A-class celebrities, really big ones. We had a pretty big media budget, social media and PR. However, both brands weren't as successful as we would have wished. One of them actually had to exit China after two years. So this really made me think about how to launch a brand in China until I 
joined the new team of the incubating team at L'Oreal, where we have launched Maison Magella and we were profitable after six months. In terms of the traditional way of doing, for example, D2C on Tmall, doing the whole offline boutiques plus media investment, it did work a couple of years ago. However, with today's new channels and all the new opportunities, we have to rethink a little bit the structure, especially for brands that have a very strong identity mm -hmm. and they speak to a group of people. This is where we have to be a little bit smarter. For me, I think I've concluded three ways. The first one is through social commerce. TikTok is great or the private traffic kind of area where we have communities. This is also how one of the clean beauty brands that I've observed or friends of mine have launched are doing. Yeah. So really the strong community having the idea of brand fans, which mm. is kind of an old idea. However, you can reinvent it in China with the new digital tools. I mean, it's an old concept in the West, but I don't feel many people in China have kind of grasped it because the private traffic one for me, it was used more like a CRM tool, I feel. So you would post coupons into groups. It worked great for bubble tea and Naicha, you know, where mm. you have this repurchasing every day. But really steering the conversation in terms of on an emotional level, this is kind of new and has to be cracked. But I feel like after the pandemic, where everyone is more used to community buying, etc., this could be a potential area that can have fast growth. Mm. The other one is um, O plus O, or the whole connection from online to offline or the combination. Here I'm thinking of one channel called Hulijia. So they actually have a beauty kind of network of 2000 beauty gurus who come to your door and they give you massages or facials or nail treatments. And they also have their own app. So this is something where you connect the online and the offline, I think, in a very cool way of doing so. Yeah. The third area. So we talked about social commerce as a reinventing one, um, O plus O. And um, I think the third one would be new retail. So especially in beauty, we've seen um, like Harmay coming up or The Colorist, etc. And one success factor that I've seen is this factor of new retail because they have their communities. For example, under Little Beast, you have this shop called A Little Bee, for example, and they have very cool niche indie consumer and beauty brands. And for example, Maison Magella launched in that channel purely as a pre-launch and after six months they were already generating enough to reinvest so i think this is definitely a third kind of new strategy and channel that brands can keep in mind so what's really interesting there is this element of communities communities driving a brand forward as you said using private traffic mm. i think perfect diary is a great example mm -hmm. of a brand really harnessing that strategy the power of word of mouth which we know is hugely important yeah. when looking at a brand's development in china i mean arguably in all markets but even more so in the chinese market it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the role that obviously private traffic but within that there's an idea of tastemakers or brand advocates and how important do we think having the right tastemakers and advocates behind your brand is? I think it's absolutely crucial because I feel like the way a brand can be successful today is like being a cool person, right? So every brand has their own personality, just like a person has a character or some strong values they stand for. And then it is exactly this way 
how you make friends because you cannot be liked by everybody and that's not our goal. <laughs> you want to make friends with a couple of people, a group of friends that share the same kind of mindset. And I think that's applicable to a brand as well. So I have observed it in the industry that a brand wanted to be attractive to all kinds of people and then they fail because then you're like nothing. <laughs> If you want to be everything, you're kind of nothing. So I feel like it's very important to just decide what you want to be, what you want to stand for yeah. and then connect to the people who share it because if they genuinely are interested or they genuinely back you, it comes from the heart and it's nothing um, made up. And I feel like consumers nowadays, they really feel it because they have seen so much on social, so much content. And, you know, a lot of times I, when I look at the social content, I go like, oh, that's sponsored or, oh, this is not so genuine. Yeah, it's a consumer fatigue. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I feel like the only way to crack it is to be 100% genuine with what you say and to actually convince people. Yeah. Just to pick that up and run with it a bit further and, and be a little contrarian as well. <laughs> In this new space in which, you know, purpose and mission matters, mm -hmm. forging these connections, building out these communities, what is the point of influencer marketing? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we've obviously seen, particularly in recent months, a whole bunch of beauty brands in particular who have had to radically rethink their influencer yeah. strategies in China with, you know, people like Austin Lee being mm. cancelled very last minute, just before 618, and essentially being caught short slightly and flailing a bit because for a lot of teams, a lot of agencies, the default mode was just to yeah. rely on yeah. these big ticket Absolutely. influencers with whom you'd have a very transactional mm -hmm. relationship. You were guaranteed essentially a, a certain number of sales at a certain margin. And that's been fine for brands that are they're chasing those, those revenue figures. But what you're describing in terms of building out something that's a little bit more organic, a bit mm -hmm. more community driven, mm -hmm. Uh, that has this kind of emotional connection to it, surely just renting out somebody's audience, which is essentially what influencer marketing is, yeah. right? Doesn't have as much of a role in that ecosystem. What is the future of influencer marketing in this yeah. space? Super interesting question. And I feel like it worked that era and it was very important to China because there was this magic formula or this unspoken formula of saying, okay, 5,000 influences on Xiaohongshu, then you pair it up yeah. with 3,000 on Douyin, then yeah. you get on an Austin Lee live stream, and then you have a brand, right? That was in 2018, 19, it was the mm -hmm. magic formula. And to be fair, it worked for a couple of brands, the channel-driven brands, I like to call it, because it was just on the rise where consumers were new to all the social channels, they were new to live stream. And if you were at the peak of this kind of traffic push, you got it or you kind of made it. The question here is, once you made it, how sustainable will it be? How far can you go with it? And I feel like Perfect Diary is a great example of being on top of the ladder. So we, as a L'Oreal group, when I was monitoring all the social activities, also 618 and previous double 11s, we were shaking because we were like, oh my God, this is so disruptive. There's no way we can keep up to this pace. But the picture looks much more different today. So I feel like the question is how long-term and sustainable is such a strategy, as you said, because many brands just rely on this traffic push and this channel. And once it falls away or something happens to it, and in China, you never know what can happen, 
the brands lose their GMV and it's not sustainable. So in my opinion, the influencer marketing, it will still exist. It's going to be like a TVC or outdoor media point. It is a channel to speak to the consumers and it's certainly very important, probably one of the most important channels today because you just have so many ways to articulate your information and speak to the consumers in a way that they are interested in. The question would be, how you allocate your budget, for example, right? Previously, I've seen brand P&Ls where 80-90% was just on influencers and it was a short-time thing. But maybe now, I think in today's world, you might want to think about shifting more onto the community stuff or if that isn't in your interest, maybe the branding stuff or really create a vision from within. So it's less about the outside, it's more from within. It's a really complicated concept to explain. It's, it's almost in a way, if we think about it, it's going back to basics exactly. of what a brand yeah. is yeah. in terms of a brand is an idea yeah. that people want to aspire to, mm -hmm. you know, a representation of a certain lifestyle. Yeah. So if we go to kind of branding 101, yeah. it's almost like China's going back into that now. Yeah. I'm not sure if China has experienced this 101. I feel like they skipped it. <laughs> I, well, yeah, they, I, I can tell you yeah. from my days when I was working in branding with domestic brands in mm. China. I mean, this yeah. was maybe 10 years ago, but I did struggle with really getting the team on board, the internal teams of brands, mm -hmm. getting them on board with the importance of understanding who we are yeah. and how we should be, you know, speaking to people. But it's so difficult because I feel like this part has to come from the founder or from the founding team. There's no way a 4A company can come in or a consultant and say, oh, this is your branding because this is such deep inside. I actually have friends in the Guangzhou area where the beauty manufacturers, they want their own brand because they see this huge trend of branding and Tmall and they go like, okay, design me a brand. And then my yeah. friend goes, okay, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> design yeah. me a brand. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a fascinating topic, which has to be educated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And another interesting topic is, as you mentioned there, the shift and the point Adam made quite rightly so is how important or how valid will influencers be in the future of marketing in China. The idea of seeing almost communities as your influencers. And when we talk about communities, it doesn't have to be an online WeChat group as mm -hmm. Perfect Diary used. Mm -hmm. It can be grassroots organizations, bands working with art organizations, or whether it's Oatly's working with vegan and vegetarian cafes, very mm -hmm. localized mm -hmm. kind of grassroots. Yeah. How much do you think we could see that in the beauty space? What I feel is super good, and this is also so a learning from the beverage brands I have invested in is actually community events. And it sounds, again, very traditional and it feels like we've been doing it all in the past. But yeah. actually, no one is really doing it in China. What I mean by this is it's a lot of effort for low return immediately. Mm. So this is really a long-term investment where, for example, you organize a sports event if you're a sports drink or, for example, a beauty workshop if you're a beauty brand. Or, for example, you connect to those communities that are currently very hot. So, for example, Frisbee just came up super big in China or this wake morning stuff. So if you organize that and you position your brand within that community, it takes so much work because I have done a couple of these events, but it's not immediate return. Yes. But I feel yeah. like it's definitely something to invest in. Mm. And um, going back to the grassroots, I actually think like universities or students, they're great communities for a lot of products because they are up and rising 
the next in terms of the consumer era, basically. And I think uh, working with them is quite fun because they are not as spoiled as some of the influencers or they do not do it on a very, very commercial level. But if you can... Um, influence them or if you can convince them that your brand is really cool and it connects to their values because they're all Gen Z nowadays, yeah. it's actually very important. We've certainly seen with some of the clients that we work with on an ongoing basis that activating kind of local student communities here yeah. in the UK is a really yeah. exciting, promising, yeah. low-hanging fruit kind yeah. of gateway. Yeah. You know, these tend to be individuals who are, you know, looking to experiment with new brands, new products, and, and often act as gateways mm. to a, a larger audience back home. So that's been very powerful for us. Absolutely. Um, we spent a lot of time today talking about some of the, the kind of the doom and gloom, the complexities, the frustrations, you know, how hard it all is. I wonder, just to kind of bring things to a close, if you wanted to give a bit of a shout out to some of the brands that are that are doing well, uh, yeah. that you think are, are kind of leading the way, that are providing a kind of light at the end of the tunnel for other businesses that are struggling in what is quite a difficult Absolutely. business environment at the moment. Yeah. Brands that I think are doing well in the consumer sector. One of my favorites so far is Moody, the contact lens brand. It's quite close to beauty, but I think they have great product. Um, the founder really knows how to work the supply chain and they're actually investing a lot into R&D. They have cool marketing and they actually get this kind of branding concept and they also are going towards the West right now. I think they are one of the coolest brands, in my opinion, who have made it Yeah, in a, in a Chinese um, environment. And I feel like some of the clean beauty brands, because we are talking about clean beauty brands today, I have two friends in China who have launched their own. One is called Soba Beauty. And they are really doing this community approach and such a genuine brand. And they really, really put so much focus on the product. It's such a great product. And I feel like they are doing this long-term thing. Because for me, a good brand, and I always tell my team, you know, if you create an asset without the logo, without a product, can people still tell that this is your brand? Because when I see an Armani ad, I know it's Armani. Or I would go like, okay, Bobby Brown, maybe Armani. Or I would go into that sector. And this is so crucial. Another cool clean beauty brand is called Dewey Lab. And they got invested by Red, Xiao Hongshu. I think it's the first investment in the beauty sector that Xiao Hongshu has made. And those two are kind of leading the movement currently in clean beauty in China. And another favorite brand of mine is called Sight. It is a new color cosmetic brand as well, Chinese. They have such a strong identity. I think they and Moody, they are the coolest brands I've seen from China locals so far. They're very avant-garde. Um, they go into this ugly beauty kind of area. They have cushions um, that gives you freckles. But I think it's so innovative and super interesting. I feel like they can actually really make it global. <laughs> Great. So definitely a few brands there that I'm going to be looking at myself. Yeah. I think it's been great to really explore not only clean beauty and, and what it means to Chinese consumers, but also really understand just how important having a wider purpose to your brand is and seeing how that's moving across all of the industries in China and, and consumers are really almost demanding that from brands. Interestingly as well, you're talking about these brands in your incubator or the brands that your friends have launched, and they are not only so strong within function, but also within purpose and on that emotional level as well. And I think it just highlights what a really difficult marketplace it is. You know, yeah. it's a very uh, saturated space. And I mm -hmm. think we're now seeing 
you know, as you said, long gone are the days of put 50K, 100K, whatever currency it is, put this money behind this influencer and we'll see some results. Consumers are demanding a lot more. They're savvier, they're more educated, they're more aware and they're more decisive now I think as well they know more what they want correct and what they demand from a product so it's going to be interesting to see how that develops across as we said a number of industries but definitely within the beauty space where we are seeing these shifts towards a more emotionally led product but also a cleaner more beneficial product both for yourself and the environment so yeah thank you so much for exploring all of these topics with us today I think it's been a really fruitful conversation and uh, I look forward to following you and your brands in the incubator and, and seeing how they progress yeah the pleasure's genuinely been all ours Lisa it's been amazing to have you on where can our audience reach you if they want to get in touch Thank you. The pleasure was all on my side. It was super much fun and happy to connect with everyone on LinkedIn. So my LinkedIn name is Lisa Shiqi with S-I-S-H-I-Q-I and U-Y-U. So yeah, it was super much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you both to Lisa and of course to Adam, our co-host. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been great to be on and see how the sausage is made. (laughs) Thank you. It's been great to have you here. And I will be speaking to you in our next episode where we dive into some more trends shaping China, be they niche or mainstream. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend. Tracing the trend.